Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. The Supreme Court's 2018 term begins in two weeks, and the justices have already agreed to hear a number of important cases. This term, they will tackle issues such as the non-delegation doctrine, procedural hurdles that property owners face in challenging a government taking of their property, the separate sovereign's exception to the double jeopardy clause, incorporation of the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines, and much more. Exciting, right? (laughs) If last term was a blockbuster term, with cases such as Janus, Masterpiece, and the travel ban, just to name a few, this term is shaping up to be a box office bomb, at least when it comes to uh, to high-profile cases with attention-grabbing headlines. But perhaps there are some sleeper hits on the court's docket. To put an interesting spin on these cases, we're fortunate to have with us today two of the top Supreme Court advocates around. In order to get to our panelists, I will keep their introductions very brief. First up, we have Joseph Palmore. He's a managing, managing partner of Morrison & Foster's uh, Washington, D.C. office, where he co-chairs the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice Group. He's argued 10 cases at the Supreme Court, and he previously served as an assistant to the Solicitor General and Deputy General Counsel of the FCC. Joe clerked for Judge Dennis Jacobs on the Second Circuit and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. He's a graduate of Harvard and the University of Virginia School of Law. And then we'll hear from Paul Clement. He's a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, and he served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States. He's argued more than 90 cases before the Supreme Court. That's more than any lawyer in and out of government since 2000. Paul previously served as a chief counsel of a Senate subcommittee, and he clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman on the D.C. Circuit and Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Paul received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown and his JD from Harvard Law School. So with that, Joe, can you kick things off and tell us about the dispute over possible gravestone markers in the town, uh, the township of Scott, Pennsylvania? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, for being here. And I, I would think this is true. It's not a blockbuster term in the way we've had in the past few years, but I think there are still some really interesting kind of Supreme Court nerd kind of cases and important doctrinal cases uh, that we'll, we'll talk about today. And one of those is Nick versus the Township of Scott. And the question presented, which I'll is brief, I'll read it, is whether the court should reconsider the portion of Williamson County Regional Planning Commission versus Hamilton Bank requiring property owners to exhaust state court remedies to ripen federal takings claims. And that sounds fairly technical, and and it is, but it's actually a very important case for property rights and whether the doors to the federal courthouses will be open to people um, asserting takings claims. 
The case involves the rural township of uh, Scott, which is in eastern Pennsylvania, and apparently in this part of Pennsylvania, kind of backyard grave sites and burial grounds are quite common. Um, and in December 2012, the township enacted an ordinance basically saying that on any property, including private property, where one of these private burial sites uh, appears, uh, the property owner has to provide access to the public to, to visit uh, the, the cemetery, the backyard cemetery. And the statute imposes $300 to $600 fines on those who refuse to provide that access. Rosemary Nick owns 90 acres in the township, and according to the township, there's some dispute about this, but according to the township, there, one of these backyard old burial sites exists on her property. Um, she declined to provide access to the public. Uh, she was, the, the township said she was in violation of the ordinance, and she sued, uh, and she started a takings claim in federal court. And she said that uh, the statute, the ordinance, violates the takings claim, takings clause, both on its face and as applied, because uh, it's authorized a physical invasion of her property. And as uh, I know, I probably don't have to tell this audience what the takings clause says, but it, uh, it it says, "Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation." That last phrase, "without just compensation," is critical here, um, and. The, uh, and in particular, the construction of that phrase uh, in the Supreme Court's decision in Williamson County is what's teed up in this case. So Williamson County had two holdings, uh, one uh, easy and one wildly controversial. The easy one was, and the court called them both ripeness considerations. The court said that you can't bring a takings claim against government action that's not yet final, um, and that's non-controversial, and that's not at issue in, in Nick. The other part of Williamson County, which is, was controversial the day it was announced and has continued to be controversial, which the court also called a ripeness doctrine, um, was that the, uh, the, what the court said was as a conceptual matter, the takings clause is not actually a prohibition, a flat prohibition on the taking of private property. It's a prohibition on the taking of private property without just compensation. So what the court said was, if you haven't sought just compensation, you haven't used your available state court remedies to, to get paid for the appropriation of your property, then you simply don't have a takings claim. Um, and you get kicked out of federal court. You've got to go to state court first. So turning back to Ms. Nick's takings claim, it was dismissed in the district court, and that dismissal was affirmed in the Third Circuit um, because of Williamson County. What the court said was, you haven't yet gone into Pennsylvania State Court and filed what's called an inverse condemnation action to try to get compensation for this effective easement that the ordinance has, um, has imposed on your property. And so you haven't shown that there is no just compensation here. So go try that and then come back and we'll, and we'll talk. Um, and the cert petition in that case, which was filed by the Pacific Legal Foundation, um, as I opened with, tees this issue up and says, we want you to overrule Williamson County. Um, and Ms. Nick's briefing uh, makes kind of conceptual points and practical ones. The conceptual one is she tries to kind of reformulate what the takings clause is. And she says, the taking, under, when you sue under the takings clause, you are challenging the appropriation of your property. The just compensation is simply the remedy that the federal court can provide. It's not part of the kind of prima facie showing that you have to make. And then she makes practical arguments um, supported by many amici about the kind of perverse results that Williamson County have ha has had because it's not really an exhaustion requirement um, because 
if, if you go into state court and say, I want compensation because this is a taking, and the state court says, no, you're actually not owed any compensation because it's not a taking, you, don't, that's, you haven't exhausted a remedy and then you go into federal court. You've basically lost your case at that point because the Supreme Court held in a case called San Remo Hotel that that decision by the state court is then binding on you and you've lost and you're never going to be able to go into federal court. Um, so she has a, one of the lines in um, her brief uh, jumped out at me where she says, in practice, the requirement of Williamson County entirely bars takings litigants from federal court, frustrates their access to state court, and generally turns an attempt to establish a compensable taking into a chaotic, self-defeating, and wasteful endeavor. And that's kind of the theme of her brief. Um, a couple quick comments about Amiki uh, in the case. First, the, the Solicitor General filed an amicus brief on Ms. Nick's side. Um, it's possible that it's happened before, but I personally have never seen the Solicitor General file an amicus brief on the side of a, a plaintiff in a takings case, usually the kind of institutional interests of the U.S., which uh, is often a defendant in takings uh, cases, is on the other side. But here, um, you know, perhaps this SG and this DOJ made a determination that the property right interests here were significant enough that they were going to kind of go against the kind of normal MO in cases like this for the United States. Um, and lastly, there was an interesting amicus brief filed by cemetery law scholars. Um, I've, you know, there are a lot of law professors uh, filing briefs in the Supreme Court. I've never seen a group of cemetery law professors, cemetery law scholars, file a brief. Uh, the point of their brief is that it is well, a well-established principle of common law that once human remains are intentionally placed in real property, such real property and all subsequent owners are burdened by encumbrances in favor of the dead, the kin of the dead, and the public. So, I mean, it's easy to chuckle, but this is actually, it's, it's, I think it's valuable when people with kind of specialized and idiosyncratic knowledge file amicus briefs in the, in the court to provide context for in a case like this. Definitely an interesting one to watch. Uh, so, Paul, can you tell us about the Frank case, the Cypre case? Sure, I, I, I will. Um, so, Cypre, or however you'd like to say it, it's like Norman, old Norman French. So, um, you know, there's probably more than one way to pronounce it, even in France. Uh, but it is a doctrine that uh, doesn't have a lot to do, at least as an original matter, with class actions laws, but that's the way that it comes up before the Supreme Court uh, this term in a case that I think does have, certainly not a blockbuster, but I do think it has a lot of practical implications for uh, class action law generally and corporate defendants, I think, in particular. Um, the, the, the doctrine is actually a doctrine of trust. And the French saying, you know, roughly means that you try to get things as close as possible uh, when there's a theoretical impediment to doing something the way that it was originally intended. And so like a classic example of this is if there was a trust set up uh, that the funds, the corpus of the trust was supposed to be dedicated to the abolition of slavery. Uh, and then the trust, the length of the trust, the life of the trust extends beyond the 13th Amendment. Um, you know, at that point, can you use the trust, can the court sort of reform the trust in a way that the trust can be used for some similar enterprise, um, even though the sort of abolition movement has been fought and won at that point? And so um, that's the doctrine in trust law. It's a well-established doctrine in trust. Why does it have anything to do with class actions? Well, there are certain situations, and kind of the classic situation is in a class action settlement uh, there's a bunch of money put into, as, you know, essentially a kitty that's used to pay out class members. And it's in the nature of class actions, particularly large class actions, 
that not every member of the class is going to come forward and claim the money that they are entitled to. And so you'd expect in a situation if, you know, let's say you have a thousand plaintiffs and you give them each like a dollar, um, you would expect that, you know, not all thousand come forward. And if like, let's say 900 come forward, then you still have a hundred dollars left at the end of the day. And so class action settlements would often have uh, provisions built into them such that that $100 did not just go back to the defendant who by hypothesis had done something wrong and that didn't seem quite right. And so sometimes there would be creative ways to what would happen with the leftover money. So that seemed to work okay. Courts seemed to give that largely a pass. And then some people had the bright idea, um, well, like let's just dispense with the first part. Um, there's no need to like actually give any money to actually any plaintiffs who are actually going to collect it. Let's just take a, you know, a class action where nobody was obviously hurt that much and let's just make the whole settlement um, a Cypress settlement so that all of the money just from the get-go is going to go to some charitable causes or the like. Now, you could imagine like why in the world does this make any sense for anybody? Well, it makes a lot of sense for the corporate defendant because you can settle a claim and you know extinguish a claim. Um, you know there might be the possibility of some opt outs, but if you have low dollar claims, you know you're probably not going to get that many opt outs and you're not that worried about them. But you can just make a whole bunch of cases just kind of go away by settling the case. And it makes sense from the plaintiff's perspective because they'd like to get paid, and you know 33 percent of nothing is nothing. But 33% of a $10 million fund that goes to various charitable causes is real money. And so you can see why this makes sense for the plaintiffs, counsel. You can see why this makes sense for the defendant. It's a little harder to see why it makes sense for the actual members of the class, uh, which is why these Cypress settlements have drawn objections by members of the class. And that's what happened in this case and it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, I'll just say a couple more things uh, about this. I mean, one is that I'm guessing that everybody in this room is actually a member of this class. You probably didn't know it, but if you've used Google, you are a member of this class. Uh, the claim in this case is based on there being uh, some violations of federal statutory law and uh, state law based on the fact that when you do a Google search, uh, if you don't have sort of cookies or whatever else turned off, your Google search itself is going to be communicated to uh, potential websites uh, who then may later, you know, advertise you for something that you were uh, searching for. And the claim is that that process that Google did violated uh, statutory and common law rights. Um, so that's the issue that's teed up. It's been teed up by an objector. This case was also teed up essentially by the invitation of the Chief Justice a few terms ago in a separate writing where he, in a case that didn't squarely present the question, sort of raised the question of whether this practice was really sort of viable. Um, I think that the, the Solicitor General uh, has filed an amicus brief in this case as well. It's an interesting brief, you know, for two reasons. One, it's interesting that the Solicitor General's office has largely taken an adverse view of these kind of settlements. It's also interesting because the Solicitor General has pointed out that there actually may not be standing for any of these plaintiffs in light of the Supreme Court Spokio uh, decision from a few terms ago. 
So the Solicitor General's brief has a little bit of this sort of skunk at the garden party uh, flavor to it in the sense that, you know, they may have pointed out something that suggests that the court really shouldn't even decide uh, the issue that it clearly took this case to decide. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out before the court. Uh, you know, my own sense of this case is that, you know, with the Chief Justice raising the question and with there being sort of enough uh, peculiarity to this practice that uh, that the court is going to look for some way to be skeptical of this. You know, the harder question, in a sense, is where in Rule 23 do you locate the source of the skepticism that allows you to say either never or hardly ever, and if hardly ever, under what conditions? I mean, there are definitely candidates for that, including uh, the provisions that address the fairness of class action settlements. But I think, you know, I, I think my prediction will be there will be some skepticism and it will be a matter of trying to sort of channel that skepticism to a particular aspect of Rule 23 that gives the courts the tools to enforce these kind of proposals. Thanks. All right, Joe, back to you. Let's talk about non-delegation and the Sex Offender Registry and Notification Act. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to talk about Gundy versus the United States, which presents the question of whether the Sex Offender uh, Registration and Notification Act, known as SORNA, um, whether its delegation to the Attorney General violates the non-delegation doctrine. So although this arises in an unusual setting, this is a potentially very important administrative law case, um, kind of a sleeper case. It's one to keep an eye on. Um, and it could lead to new limits on the power of administrative agencies. So the non-delegation doctrine is one of these doctrines that's uh, much discussed and uh, in recent times never successfully asserted. Um, and it says that Congress alone passes, possesses the legislative power and it can't transfer that power to another branch of government. And uh, in the 20th century, what the court has said is, to, you know, to be sure, Congress can have administrative agencies implement statutes, but it has to provide intelligible principles when they do that. It can't just kind of hand over the keys to the legislative kingdom to an agency and tell them to make law. So you may be asking, what does this have to do with sex offenders? And that would be a good question. Um, so SORNA requires that any person convicted of certain specified sex offenses register uh, as in each jurisdiction where they live or work, and then makes it a felony if they travel across state lines having not registered. Um, Congress enacted this statute in 2006, um, and its application to those convicted after that date of enactment is quite clear. But strangely, the Congress didn't decide for itself whether SORNA would apply to those with uh, sex offense convictions before its enactment. It kicked that decision to the Attorney General. Uh, and there are 500,000 some odd people, so it's actually a significant group of people. Um, and so how does that delegation read? It says, the Attorney General shall have the authority to specify the applicability of the requirements of this subchapter to sex offenders convicted before the enactment of this chapter and to prescribe rules for their registration. That's it. No standard, no guidance on what factors the Attorney General is supposed to consider when making this uh, judgment call, just a kind of a naked delegation. Um, and over the years, different Attorney Generals have interpreted this in different ways and have, 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 have applied SORNA to different populations of pre-enactment um, sex offenders. So the question in Gundy is whether the, this um, delegation to the Attorney General violates the non-delegation doctrine. Gundy himself had a pre-2006 conviction. He didn't register. He was criminally prosecuted for that. And he says uh, this 
statute's applicability to me, which was decided only by the Attorney General, violates the non-delegation doctrine and is unconstitutional. Um, and he makes two arguments, one kind of sweeping and originalist and one more doctrinal. The originalist argument is that uh, the statute here grants quintessentially legislative powers to an executive officer. It allows him to prescribe rules governing the conduct of 500,000 people um, and that the Congress simply can't do that. Um, his less ambitious argument is kind of situated within the doctrine of the way the courts in recent years at least have talked about the non-delegation doctrine. He said, um, even assuming you can do some kind of delegation, if you provide intelligible principles, there simply are none here. This was, a, this was just a, a bare delegation of authority without any intelligible principles to guide the attorney general. And he has an interesting passage in his brief when he says, imagine that there were a challenge, like an APA-type challenge, if that would lie, to the attorney general's exercise of, del of this authority. What standard would a court look to in determining whether the attorney general had followed the statute? There's nothing there for a court to use to decide. So that's... Uh, Another example, uh, Gundy argues, of why this is unconstitutional. Um, so that all sounds very reasonable, but here's the thing. The non-delegation doctrine has been effectively a dead letter. Um, the last time that the Supreme Court uh, struck anything down under the non-delegation doctrine was during the New Deal era, twice in 1935, in cases you may or may not remember from law school for those who are lawyers, Panama Refining Company and ALA Schechter Poultry couple of the old chestnuts from the, um, from the New Deal or pre-New Deal court where the court found non-delegation uh, problems with federal statutes and never once since then. So it's not surprising that all 11 courts of appeals that considered this same non-delegation challenge to SORNA rejected it. The lower courts are basically hardwired to reject these kinds of claims because they're never, they're never successful. The SG's brief leans really heavily on that history, and they did something that I haven't seen before in an SG brief, which there are two or three pages of bullet points of just recounting case after case after case where the Supreme Court has rejected non-delegation um, challenges, including in statutes that may have a little more content than the one here, but not that much more. Like, so the FCC has, you know, licensing authority that it can exercise kind of, quote, in the pub public interest, convenience, or necessity. The court rejected a non-delegation challenge to that. Federal Power Commission has authority to establish, quote, just and reasonable rates, which is, you know, a, a phrase you see in a lot of the economic regulatory statutes. The court's rejected non-delegation challenges to that. Um, so how will this turn out? On, on the one hand, Gundy obviously has an uphill battle. He's got history against him. He's got the un unanimous opinion of the lower courts uh, against him. On the other hand, the court did grant cert, um, despite the absence of a split. Um, and I think that, that his petition, his briefing pretty effectively situates this case in kind of larger intellectual currents that are coursing through the court right now of, of, of disquiet with the, the power of administrative agencies and some of the doctrines that grew up in the 20th century, like Chevron and other cases, um, to authorize administrative agencies to do, to do um, very significant things. Um, so it's, I think he's, we'll have to see whether those currents and that intuition among at least some justices that uh, administrative agencies have too much power and have been, and Congress is not doing enough to rein them in. Whether that kind of impulse is enough to 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 make this the the first successful non-delegation case in eighty years. So, Paul, back to you. There are two cases you wanted to talk about where the court's being asked to revisit past decisions. 
Yeah, so I'm going to talk about sort of two cases kind of, you know, in, in, in the same turn, so to speak. Um, one of the cases is a case called the United States against Gamble, and the other is uh, a case called Hyatt against uh, California Franchise Tax Board, or could be flipped around. Um, and both of these cases, uh, they arise in quite disparate areas, but they both squarely present the question of whether the court should revisit one of its earlier precedents or stick to a decision that's under attack based on stare decisis principles. Um, and, you know, for anybody who paid any attention to at least the first phase of the confirmation hearings, the question of stare decisis was front and center and what does it mean for something to be settled precedent. So it's pretty interesting that the court has these two and, in fact, a third um, cases because Brown and the, the, the Williamson County uh, issue is squarely presented in the case that, that, that Joe talked about. So you really have three cases pretty much right off the bat for a new justice to decide whether or not they want to overturn uh, law that has you know, Supreme Court precedential effect. And so in, I'll start with the Gamble case, and there is a doctrine that's embodied in a couple of Supreme Court cases uh, called the Separate Sovereigns Doctrine in the Double Jeopardy area. And so the double jeopardy clause, as, as most of you probably uh, know it just at some level, um, says that you can't be essentially you know, held to account for the same offense twice. And so the government can't you know, take a shot at convicting you for murder. And uh, if you get an acquittal, then turn around a couple of weeks later and try to convict you for murder. So that's, that's the heart of the double jeopardy clause. And any interpretation of the double jeopardy clause requires some concept of what's the same offense. And so the double jeopardy clause doesn't work in the way that, you know, just because of at least the federal double jeopardy clause, just because something arose out of the same transaction and occurrence, to use a term from the civil law, it, you can be prosecuted for two things out of the same uh, transaction or occurrence. So you can be prosecuted sort of first for, you know, some visa fraud, and then secondly, out of the same basic set of circumstances, prosecuted for drug trafficking, and that doesn't violate the double jeopardy clause because it's not the same offense. Well, the Supreme Court several decades ago laid down the rule that even if the elements of two crimes are exactly the same, if one of the crimes is being prosecuted by the state government and the other crime is being prosecuted by the federal government, then they're not the same offense because they're prosecuted by separate sovereigns. Now, that doctrine probably wouldn't make that much difference if 18, Title 18 of the United States Code was this thick. But since over the years, Title 18 of the U.S. Code has expanded quite considerably, and there are all sorts of things that were a traditional sort of state criminal offense that now have a federal counterpart, uh, this separate sovereigns doctrine, I think, takes on more importance than uh, had historically and might at first blush meet the eye. And so the, the Supreme Court, in an opinion that was joined by Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas, who don't always agree in separate writings to tee up issues for the Supreme Court, they agreed to sort of you know, ask whether this uh, separate so sovereign doctrine uh, should be re revisited. And a number of criminal defendants have seized on that invitation and filed petitions, and the court granted one. Uh, and we'll hear this in the context of the Gamble case. Um, I think that you know, the arguments, I filed an amicus brief um, on behalf of some criminal defendant practitioners and uh, law professors, so I'm, I may be not entirely unbiased on this. But I think, you know, given the signal in the earlier case, 
um, given that you know there are still tests that give the government the ability to pursue separate offenses if they're truly separate and have different elements. You know, I, I think the separate sovereigns doctrine may be in some uh, danger in this case. Um, I think one of the interesting things to watch will be whether, you know, the vote in this case is a broad vote that includes justices uh, that you might think of as being sort of liberal justices and conservative justices, or whether even though Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas together sort of kick this issue off, whether in the end it ends up being more of a sort of left-right issue. Uh, the, the second issue, uh, I think I can, you know, I, I hate to make predictions, but I'm going to go out on a limb in the Hyatt case and say that the Supreme Court will decide this case uh, five to four as long as it has nine justices. Uh, and, 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 and I say that because the current eight justices have already voted on this case. And I don't mean this issue. I mean this case. So, you know, Supreme Court sort of, you know, geeks who spend too much time thinking about the Supreme Court sometimes talk about uh, repeaters, which are cases that get to the Supreme Court. The same case uh, gets to the Supreme Court more, uh, more than once. And so thanks to Walter Weber, I had a case involving uh, Ms. Bond uh, that went to the Supreme Court first on standing and then on the, on the merits. So I, I've seen a decent number of, of Supreme Court repeaters. I'm not sure I've seen a lot of three-peaters. Uh, but the Hyatt case, this is actually its third trip to the Supreme Court. On its last trip to the Supreme Court, um, it was argued in front of nine justices, but ultimately decided by eight justices after Justice Scalia passed away. There were two issues in the case, uh, one on the question of whether a 19, early 80s case uh, called Nevada against Hall that said that states don't have sovereign immunity in the courts of their sister sovereigns. Um, that case was teed up for potential overruling in the Hyatt case, and then there was a backup argument. Uh, the Supreme Court divided four to four on the question of whether overrule uh, Nevada against Hall, and then they decided the backup issue in favor of the California entity, sent the case back. Uh, there was a relatively modest damages award of only $100,000 on remand, and yet the court nonetheless took the, issue, the case back up to decide the issue that it had previously split on four to four. And so I, I think, you know, two things then become clear. Um, you know, all eyes will be on the ninth justice when this case is argued, um, when it's argued. Um, the second thing is case hasn't been scheduled for argument yet. So I think this is a case that if I were a betting person, I would say the Supreme Court's not going to set for argument until they have a ninth justice. Because again, we do know how every single member of the current Supreme Court is going to vote on this case, which is a kind of unusual situation. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's waiting for the ninth justice uh, to, uh, to essentially decide when the case is teed up. All right, Joe, you were going to talk about a couple of arbitration cases. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> arbitration has been actually a, a surprisingly significant focus for the Roberts Court. And as, as you all know, arbitration is when parties agree to um, decide any disputes that might arise through private arbitration out of court. It's typically, and, and many times, the arbitration agreement provides that the, any arbitration will be on an individual basis and not on a class basis. Um, in 2011, the Supreme Court issued what uh, is a landmark decision called Concepcion versus AT&T, in which it said that such private uh, arbitration agreements, even in the consumer contract, 
um, setting. So like when you check the terms and conditions, when you buy something online, there's an arbitration agreement in there. It's fully enforceable um, and it can waive class action rights and require individual arbitration. And even if state law doesn't like that or California law says that shouldn't be enforceable, that it will be enforceable as a matter of federal law under the Federal Arbitration Act. That was 2011. So since 2011, the court has um, decided eight merits cases in which lower courts had found arbitration provisions either void or inapplicable. Um, and Paul probably knows the answer to this question, but how many of those eight do you think were reversed? All eight. All eight. So the Supreme Court has consistently taken uh, cases in which lower courts um, have uh, have shown uh, skepticism or hostility to arbitration provisions and has consistently reversed them. Not surprisingly, perhaps four of those eight cases were either from the Ninth Circuit or the California appellate courts, state appellate courts. Um, and the court has been, in some of these cases, Concepcion itself was a 5-4 decision. A few of these cases have divided on those 5-4 lines, but many of them have not. They've been either unanimous or 8-1, to 7-2. And they, uh, what's but what's especially noteworthy is not just the results, but the tone of the court in some of these decisions. Um, the court has a tendency to cite the supremacy clause expressly in some of these opinions, which is something it does when it's kind of annoyed with lower courts and it wants to remind them um, who's boss. Um, so even Justice, Justice Breyer, who was a dissenter in Concepcion, wrote the court's decision in DirecTV versus Imburgia um, for a unanimous court. Um, and he said, lower, courts, lower court judges are certainly free to note their disagreement with Concepcion, but they are bound to follow it. And that was a case where nine justices basically said that the California state courts were defying um, federal law and defying Concepcion. Um, there are only a few areas of law where you kind of get the sense of the court being kind of frustrated with resistance among the lower courts. Sometimes in some habeas cases you see it, sometimes in qualified immunity cases. But arbitration is definitely an area where you're, where you're seeing it um, out of the Roberts Court. So given that sustained focus uh, on arbitration, it's perhaps not surprising that there are already three arbitration cases granted uh, this term. It's also perhaps not surprising that in all three of them, lower courts uh, ruled against arbitration, and the court has, has taken those uh, up for review. So we'll have to see if this pattern will hold and, and, and that all three will be reversed. Um, just to briefly address, address, address them, um, the first uh, is Lamps Plus versus Varela from the Ninth Circuit. Um, the case involves a fairly standard arbitration provision in which an employee said the company, an employee said the company and I mutually agree uh, to the resolution by arbitration of all claims that may hereafter arise in connection with my um, employment. In a two-to-one decision, the Ninth Circuit interpreted that provision which is fairly standard to authorize class-wide arbitration, and that's almost an oxymoron, but there is this, this thing that can happen if it's, if it's a consented to by the parties where an arbitrator can actually adjudicate a class action. Um, what the court, what the Ninth Circuit said, they read with this kind of fairly standard generic provision to actually authorize something quite unusual, which is class-wide arbitration, and the petition says, that's not enough. The Supreme, Supreme Court, you've said that mere silence on the authority to do class-wide adjudication is not enough. There has to be something approaching a clear statement rule for parties to be, uh, if they're going to be uh, viewed as having done something so unusual, and there's literally nothing here about class certification. So that seems likely to be a reversal, um, but we'll have to see. Uh, the second case that's up is one called Henry Schein versus Archer and White Sales. That's from the Fifth Circuit. 
Um, and this presents uh, the question, uh, it's a who decides question. The default rule usually is actually the court will decide whether a particular dispute is within the scope of an arbitration provision and needs to be sent to arbitration. But parties are actually free to agree in advance that they will actually have the arbitrator decide whether any given dispute is subject to arbitration. Um, and in this case, that's what the parties did. Their arbitration agreement said any dispute over arbitrability will itself be arbitrated. Um, what the Fifth Circuit said in this case was that there is a non-textual extra statutory exception to the Federal Arbitration Act, which allows a court to negate that choice of the parties if it finds the, the claim to arbitration to be, quote, wholly groundless. So if the court says, this is absurd, there's nothing for an arbitrator here to decide about whether this is arbitrable, because it clearly isn't, I'm going to keep the case and decide it. That's another one that Maybe heading toward a reversal, the Roberts Court uh, pretty consistently views arbitration as a matter of private contract and says parties are allowed to agree to whatever they want in this setting. And here the parties agreed to have this gateway question decided by an arbitrator. Um, the last case is, is um, maybe less interesting than the others, New Prime versus Oliveira, which presents another kind of who decides case uh, issue uh, on the gateway question of whether a question should be, uh, whether the arbitrability of the dispute should be decided by an arbitrator uh, or a court. And it also presents the question of an exception to the Federal Arbitration Act for certain uh, transportation workers. Um, and we'll have to see how that one uh, ends up. But I think this is probably not the last. I think there are other arbitration cases that are kind of in the pipeline working up uh, to the court, uh, many from the Ninth Circuit or the California State Courts, but not just, as, as this summary um, uh, shows. So I think this is gonna, we're going to continue to see these kinds of cases because many lower court judges continue to be skeptical of arbitration and, and think that disputes should be in court. So moving from what's already on the docket to a couple of cases that the court hasn't granted review in but might, Paul, you want to tell us about a couple of those? Sure. Um, so, you know, when when they're talking about the Cypre doctrine and arbitration cases at the preview, um, you know it's kind of a, you know, sleepy term based on, <laughs> based on the cases that are already on the court's docket. So I'm just going to finish with, you know, little like, you know, kind of a happier note saying that, you know, there might be some cases on the court's docket before the term's over uh, that are, you know, a little bit uh, kind of more uh, diverting, at least for, you know, a wider audience. You know, on, on the other hand, if, you know, if every term looked like this term, um, Supreme Court confirmation hearings might be a little different, too. So, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses to all of this. But in all events, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to talk about um, three or four just, you know, and I'm going to be very brief, but just cases that might end up on the court's docket uh, before the term is over. Um, the one that seems like it's first in line to potentially get on the court's docket is a case involving uh, a, a, a actually a local monument, which is a, a war memorial that's in Bladensburg, Maryland. And um, that war memorial was erected in uh, the wake of World War One. Um, and it's a large uh, Latin cross, um, and it's stood uh, on a sort of street circle, traffic circle, since, uh, you know, essentially uh, the, I think it was, the construction was completed in the early 1920s, and it's been there ever since, but uh, it, it, it attracted the, the notice of some uh, people that believe in a very uh, high wall of separation between uh, church and state, and so they brought a challenge in, uh, in the Fourth Circuit, um, and the Fourth Circuit found that the Bladensburg Cross was a violation of the Establishment Clause. 
And so a petition has been filed for the Supreme Court, um, supported by uh, a lot of uh, amicus briefs. I've, again, full disclosure, I filed one of those amicus briefs on behalf of the, the VFW. Um, but it's, it's an issue that I think is quite likely to attract the court's attention. I think, you know, e even, you know, if you go back to the Ten Commandments monument case involving Texas uh, a decade ago, um, you know, even Justice Breyer, I think, sort of had some concerns about sort of what it signals if, you know, the government starts sort of tearing down longstanding uh, memorials and uh, or, you know, things, even if they have a religious content, even if you might enjoin their erection in the first instance today, if they've been longstanding, you know, certainly the idea that that's going to be sort of taken down uh, or, you know, some other remedy provided, I think is something that, you know, is, is, is likely to capture the Supreme Court's attention. So I do think there is a decent chance this case will be added to the court's docket. And, you know, if it, if it is added to the court's docket, I think this is a case where, you know, even if Justice Kennedy were still on the court, I think that the challengers would have sort of a tough, a tough argument here because of the particular history of this memorial. It is, you know, very longstanding, and it's also pretty clearly was, you know, designed as a war memorial um, as opposed to some other crosses that are out there across the country where I think sort of the background history is is a little different. So I think, I think if the court takes this case, uh, it's going to be a tough case for the challengers, and I think it'll be a case where, you know, I, I think Maryland uh, probably has the, the, the stronger argument in, in defending the cross. Um, two, two cases um, that I'm involved in that I'll just mention. Um, one is another takings case, um, and this involves uh, the California Coastal Commission, uh, which, you know, about every decade or so uh, manages to give a takings issue to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, this one involves somebody who's basically told by the California Coastal Commission uh, that, uh, that, that he could not deny access to uh, the beach uh, and, and essentially had to continue to operate um, a beach that allowed uh, people to get access to the beach, which is the property owner's property. But when he bought the property for a number of years, uh, somebody who the prior owner had run a little sort of uh, – I don't know what the right word for it is, but they'd give for, for you know, $5 a car, $20 a car, a relatively modest fee, you could get access to the beach. And when he bought his property, he had every intent of shutting that down. And the California Toastal Commission told him that he couldn't, at least until he got a permit. Um, one of the, it's not the issue that's teed up for the Supreme Court, but one of the things that caught my attention about the case was the theory for why he needs a permit is that California law says that if you're going to make a development that uh, changes the intensity of the use of the coast or the ocean, you need to get a permit. Now, now I would have thought that that was designed for somebody that takes like a vacant lot and wants to put like a big new hotel on it and it's going to change the intensity of the use of the coast and the beach in that direction. I would have thought that if you wanted to actually decrease the intensity of the use of the beach and the ocean that you'd need a permit for that. But California has interpreted that. That's state law, and that's sort of a given. The question in the case that's teed up is whether or not a, a, a temporary uh, taking um, that is a physical taking is subject to per se analysis, or whether because it's a temporary taking, you can just do sort of more of a Penn Central type analysis. So there's, there's an important underlying takings case there. And I think 
you know, there's there's reason to think that um, that 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 a court that has a ninth member is going to be somewhat receptive to takings cases. So it will be interesting to see whether the court's interested in that case. Um, the the other case uh, that I'm also involved in, but is not a cert petition, um, is the partisan gerrymandering case out of North Carolina. Uh, that's a case that, because it was decided by a three-judge court, um, is on appellate jurisdiction to the Supreme Court. So nothing's a guarantee, but it's not like the court can just say, oh, we're really not that interested in getting into the partisan gerrymandering issue again, so we're going to deny cert. Um, and so I think there's a very good likelihood that before the term is over, uh, the Supreme Court will have to revisit the, the issue that it essentially, you know, to use a technical legal term, punted uh, last term in the Gill case by deciding that there wasn't standing. I think they will have uh, the sort of whether or not partisan gerrymandering is a justiciable claim teed up for them, likely uh, this, this term of the court before things are all said and done. Joe, are there any pending petitions that you wanted to mention? Yeah, one I'll, I'll mention, which um, uh, is Fresno County Superintendent of Public Schools versus Rizzo. The first question is an important question under the Equal Pay Act, but that's not what caught my eye. The second question presented is, um, may deceased judges continue to participate in the determination of cases after their deaths? Um, the Ninth Circuit issued a number of decisions after Judge Reinhardt died uh, that he either wrote or joined, and they just issued the decision with him on them. Uh, and what this petition argues is that that is uh, not pr proper. Uh, they said that uh, uh, that if decision uh, that a court's decision is not made until the opinion is issued and only confirmed judges who are living may participate at that decision point. Um, so we'll have to see. And then you could contrast what the Ninth Circuit did here to the Supreme Court's practice when, as Paul alluded to, when Justice Scalia died. I'm sure there were plenty of cases that he had voted on in conference. I'm sure opinions had circulated, but he came off of all of those. And if any of that resulted in a 4-4, then it was, you know, held over or affirmed by an equally divided court. So what this petition is arguing is that the courts of appeals um, should be required to uh, follow that same practice. I don't know whether the court will have any interest in this, but it was something that, that caught my eye as a, an interesting issue that hadn't occurred to me before. Definitely an interesting issue. So I want to open it up for questions from the audience, but I have one question for you, Paul. Are you going to hit 100 arguments this term? Uh, no, not this term. <laughs> not, not, not at the rate they're going, yeah. I, um, so, so stay tuned. Maybe next term. <laughs> All right. Who has a question? Well, um, do we have microphones? Okay. Do you all talk about the, uh, the uh, uh, Coach Kennedy case out of Bre Bremerton, Washington? Paul, I think you're, you're a counsel of record on that case, aren't you? It's on petition for cert. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about that case. I was actually going to, and then I said, well, I can't talk about, like, three of my cases. Um, so, um, so, so thank you. I wasn't even planted, um, just for the record. Um, so the Coach Kennedy case is another one that, that you know, is, is teed up for the Supreme Court to consider relatively uh, early in the term. It does uh, have a lot of uh, amicus support behind it. Um, it, it. It's a case out of the, the Ninth Circuit. It involves a school district that... Essentially, um, and you know, the school district would certainly say, "Oh, it's it's much more complicated than this." But it's essentially uh, a school district that fired the football coach for praying at, on the 50-yard line after uh, football games. Um, and so, you know, it sounds like it must be like an establishment clause uh, case, but it's really more of a 
of, you know, like a pickering employee free speech case. And, you know, the question is whether or not um, under the First Amendment, um, a, a high school coach or a school teacher has the right to engage in um, certain private conduct. It happens to be religious, and certainly that's an important part of the background of the case, but just as a doctrinal matter, it's really more of a First Amendment free speech issue. Um, or whether or not the uh, sort of speech that the, that, the, that, the, that the coach or the teacher engages in is essentially uh, so, like, obviously associated with the school that the school has the ability to regulate it and essentially control it and say, no, there's certain things you can't do. And it, I think it's really actually quite an interesting sort of doctrinal issue if you think about it in those terms. Uh, what the school district argues and what the Ninth Circuit accepted um, is that, you know, essentially for people like high school football coaches or high school teachers, that the students are essentially watching everything you do. So everything you do is part of your job. And therefore, we get to essentially regulate all of your speech um, at least if, you're, if it's done on school premises. Um, and, you know, the argument, uh, you know, to the contrary is essentially, well, even if, you know, the state has and the school districts have a fair amount of control, there's certain things, and particularly religious speech, um, that, you know, at least if it's done sort of in a relatively private way, uh, is not something that they can regulate. And that's why, you know, there, there are factual disputes about how much the high school players were involved in the prayers and, and, and the like. But I think, as the case comes up to the Supreme Court, I think it's a fair statement that even on the assumption that this was done in a very sort of discreet matter and individually on the 50-yard line after the game, but not involving uh, players from the team, that that's something that the school district still thinks that it can ban, and Coach Kennedy certainly thinks he has a First Amendment right to uh, partake in. So that's another case that could be on the, on the court's docket before too long. Other questions? Down here. What's the status of the sex discrimination uh, transgender cases? I think at least one of them is on the long conference, uh, September twenty fourth. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think I, I think that you know there's that one on the long conference, but I think that there's the case out of the Sixth Circuit, um, which I think is the is the one that involves a sort of a transgender plaintiff, if, if, I'm, if I'm getting my cases right, I think that one may be a little bit sort of behind. Um, and I also think that, you know, that was a case that was uh, brought by the EEOC under the Obama administration in the first instance. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a complicated case just from a matter of whether, you know, you know what, what position the Justice Department would take. And, you know, for those of us that have been in the SG's office, you know, we're kind of aware of the fact that the EEOC has a certain degree of litigation independence in the lower courts, but is represented by the Solicitor General's office in the Supreme Court. So, you know, that's one to sort of just kind of keep an eye out for, um, not just for whether the court ultimately takes it, but it'll be kind of interesting to see kind of what, what brief ultimately uh, emanates from the SG's office in that case. Other questions? So it seems like we, are, we always hear we're one term away from the demise of Chevron deference. Do you see any cases on the horizon where uh, the justices may have an opportunity to, re to review Chevron or our deference or any of the other deference doctrines? 
I don't have a specific case in mind. I mean, I know there are plenty of people because it's in the air and there have been separate writings by a number of justices on it um, that there there will be plenty of opportunities because I think people will continue to petition on it. I think the one that could um, uh, come first would be what's called our deference, which is um, perhaps more vulnerable, and it's whether um, courts should and must defer to agencies' interpretations of their own regulations. Um, so I think if it's possible they might take an hour case first. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I, I suspect at some point they'll take a case to revisit Chevron. I don't know at all how it comes out, actually, though, because I think, you know, I mean, Justice Scalia was the, one of the big proponents of Chevron, although later in his life he became perhaps a reluctant supporter. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily breaks down on traditional ideological lines. Yeah, and, and, and the only other thing I'd add is, you know, if if – you know, if if you're the Solicitor General right now, I'm not sure you're, you know, going to argue cases in a way that goes out of your way to tee up Chevron. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to sort of get most of the benefit of Chevron, but, you know, sort of say, and we'd win under Skidmore anyways, or, you know, the like. And so, you know, I, I, I it, it, you know, I think it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how this gets sort of teed up. Because, you know, you could, you could imagine if you had an administration that was very bullish about Chevron and or our deference and thought they had the votes to get them reaffirmed, you know, they might behave one way. But, you know, my suspicion is that, you know, the current Justice Department, you know, is probably going to be a little reluctant to just sort of tee up one of those issues really squarely. And, you know, there, there are certainly going to be ways or there are going to be certainly areas where there's a lower court decision that squarely relies on Chevron or squarely relies on our and, and the litigants will try to tee that up. But even after they do, I think the government, you know, may have some latitude to try to sort of soften the edges on their position and keep that issue from being definitively decided. So it could take a little while. We have time for one final question right down here. Todd Gatziana from Pacific Legal Foundation. So thanks for talking about Nick. But actually, I wanted to respond to the last uh, few. It's only a cert petition, but it fits the pattern exactly that, that Paul mentioned. We have one that 17 states and several other amici have supported, California Sea Urchin. And we kind of thought before this Ninth Circuit's outrageous extension of Chevron that our deference, like you, would be the more logical for the court but we have a case that the Ninth Circuit extended um, uh, Chevron and, and found that there should be – the Ninth Circuit found that there should be deference to Congress not denying an agency authority. So the Ninth Circuit expressly – so this is an extension of Chevron. Ninth Circuit expressly said the statute doesn't – isn't ambiguous as to the agency's power, but since it didn't prohibit it, it's a rather extraordinary – extension. And so we're in the situation, Paul, that you described in saying the court should at least, you know, our, our, our um, question presented says should strike down this extension of Chevron, which I think is, is attractive. And the state of Texas and 16 other states said, yes, they should, but they should grant this petition and overrule Chevron. Several other Miki have. We're working on a reply brief right now, and the United States has, of course, tried to do what you said they should do. You, you know the, and tried to confuse the issue and say somehow um, the Ninth Circuit would have been. This is my characterization. We're working on a reply brief right now. I'm one of the counsel, but the lead attorney is doing the real work. 
um, uh, they said, well, the United States should have won on a different theory. And our response is, of course, yeah, but they didn't. You know, this is the, you are essentially, it, it's our job in the reply brief to sharpen the focus and say, but then you agree with us that the Ninth Circuit should be reversed. So all cert petitions, as you all know, are long shots, but I, but I would draw that this case to your attention because it does have um, some serious support. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists.